Welcome to the new OTMP podcast. It is Wednesday, the 16th of December, 2020. We have said it many times in our newsletter and on our website that education and information are key factors in the management of infectious disease. COVID-19 has resulted in an infodemic, which has been subject to both misinformation and disinformation. With this podcast, we aim to give you a balanced, data-driven view of the information we present. And as always, we advise that you critically analyse all information, including ours, and ask if it is rational and logical. In Hong Kong, we are again seeing an increase in social distancing regulations in response to the fourth wave of infections. The incidence of silent community transmission and evolving clusters make it likely that enhanced social distancing measures will remain in place for some weeks. However, Hong Kong is fortunate to have world-class expertise in the management of infectious disease and particularly in the fields of epidemiology and virology. For this first podcast, Dr David Owen sat down with Professor Ben Cowling, the division head of the School of Public Health at Hong Kong University. During their conversation, they discussed the transmission of COVID-19, whether we should close schools, and considered the public health dilemma of balancing the impact of a disease against the impact of public health measures used to control the disease. Their interview took place on Friday the 11th of December at Professor Cowling's office at HKU during a short break in his busy schedule. So Ben, I wonder if you could start maybe by describing... I think it's fair to say uh, the landmark paper early on that, that you published, which showed anything between 10 and 20% of cases were responsible for 80% of subsequent cases and really um, helped us to understand the importance of these uh, accelerating or super spreading events and, mm. and, and really, I think, is is some way behind many of the public health measures. I wonder if you could just... Yeah, sure. Maybe we could even go a, a little bit, uh, one step backwards and say what, what would happen in Hong Kong if we were to just go back to normal now, if we just say, okay, we've had enough of all of this social distancing, what well, you know, what would be the consequence? We've got COVID cases in the community right now. We know about that. If we don't do anything, we know that on average, one person will spread to maybe two or three others. So right now, if today, I think there's something, you know, something approaching 100 cases, that means in a week's time, there could be 200 cases a day, a week after that, 400 a day, and, and more and more and more as time goes on. And the numbers will still be small initially, but then they'll get into the thousands, tens of thousands. And once you start getting a lot of cases, some of them need to go into hospital. A real small minority would need to go in intensive care. Right now, the hospital system can cope. But if we're to have 10 times, 100 times as many infections at one point in time, that's going to put enormous pressure on the healthcare system. We, we don't want that to happen. Uh, we've seen what happens if COVID is allowed to freely spread in northern Italy back in February and March, in New York in March and April in other big cities around the world. So we've really got to slow down the spread. And if we don't do anything, one person might be transmitting to two or three others. We need to bring that down to below one by using either social distancing measures or targeted interventions against people that we know are infected. And that's why we do the isolation of cases. We trace their contacts and put the contacts in quarantine. And so far in March and again in July, the measures that we have in place have been sufficient uh, the measures we've brought in have been sufficient to get on top of transmission and to bring the daily numbers back down to zero. And they came down to zero in April, May. They came down to zero in October. Uh, so that that's really the, the reason why we're doing all of these measures. And you mentioned about super spreading. 
when one person on average spreads to maybe two or three others, uh, and that's happened in Hong Kong back earlier in March, earlier in July, it's not that every single case is spreading to two others. Actually, most cases don't seem to be very contagious. It's an interesting phenomenon with COVID. It does happen with some other infections as well. The different cases have different levels of contagiousness for, for some biological reason. And what we found in Hong Kong is that actually a minority of the cases are responsible for most of the spreading. So just 10 or 20% of cases are doing 80% of all the transmission. And that's really the rationale for why we're preventing large gatherings of people, closing bars, having these other interventions on crowded gatherings, particularly in indoor spaces, because if there was one of these more contagious cases there, uh, there could be a large outbreak as a consequence. And if we can prevent that from happening, and so even the contagious cases can't infect very many other people because they don't have the opportunity, we can bring down transmission quite effectively. Could you talk a little bit about, I know in the background, it, it's, it's not only looking at cases as they're happening. Another research paper early on from Hong Kong University was really looking at big data. And, and I think you've been calling, along with Professor Leung and others, for some tightening of the, of the um, social distancing measures, even a little bit before we started to see this recent uptick in cases. Could you, could you sort of explain what you were looking at that was giving you some sense of alarm there? Yeah, so, so one of the things we've been tracking is the usage of public transport as a way of seeing how much people are traveling in Hong Kong, how much people are moving around, as opposed to how much they're staying at home. And we've seen worrying signs over the past 10 months that people are, are kind of going back to normal, even when there is social distancing measures in place. And so I mentioned already that in March and in July, when the government brought in these social distancing measures, that they were effective in reducing transmission. But it's not the measure itself that has the effect, it's the consequence for people's behaviour. So if the government says you should work at home, people actually still need to work at home and stay at home. If instead of staying at home, they're still going out, but just not going to the office, you won't see as much of a reduction in transmission. And what we've seen in the octopus data on the, the usage of public transport is that people aren't reducing their mobility, their movement as much now as they had been, say, back in July. I think this is one of the issues in terms of communicating in, in an evolving public health crisis, isn't it? That sometimes I've had people assuming to me when they talk about working in the office that, that it's the idea that the office is the dangerous place. But as you're saying, it's really about metaphorically trying to take more balls off the snooker table and, and reduce those probability events. Do you think yeah, that's, that's right. right. I mean, I, I think in, in a typical working day for someone working in an office in Central, say, I think there's there's a risk associated with travelling to the office. There's a risk associated with being in the office around lots of other people. There's a risk when you go out for lunch and there's a risk when you go home again on the public transport. And we'd like to mitigate all of those risks. So working at home the idea is if the person really stays at home, they've mitigated all of them. If some of the people in the office stay at home, others don't, we've still mitigated some of the risk because there's less people in the crowded office. If restaurants are more spaced out, we mitigate the lunchtime risk. So it's that's really the objective of the public health measures is to reduce all of those risks. But of course, recognising that, that not everybody can work at home all the time because there's some jobs really need to people to, to go in. And as we know, this whole process has become so politicised. I mean, invariably, the management of infectious diseases is always ultimately political. Restricting movements of, of people is a political decision to some degree. Um, but when we, 
we're, we're balancing these risks. I, I find it difficult because it's often it's often described as either lives versus the economy, and I think the you know, the importance here. This is about lives versus lives, isn't it? It's it's about a decision that we make on one hand versus the decision that we make on on the other, and and part of that maybe to go back to your point about um, probability events. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about school. Mm. Um, there's been a couple of papers in the in the in the Lancet, and my read of this of the school data is that young children are predominantly less likely to have significant illness. We know that. Older adolescents maybe are, are, are spreading it more. It seems that from that, that paper in July that, that, that transmission within the classroom doesn't seem to be significant. Um, we know that kids need to be educated. How do we balance this? It, it's it's uh, the, the risk doesn't seem to be the schools, in my understanding. It seems to be the yeah. events outside, the super spreading type of events for the, of, of the older adolescents. So Would that seem a reasonable assessment? We looked at what happened in, in June and July in Hong Kong when the third wave was starting. There were 15 confirmed cases in that period of time in children who went to school. And in each of those 15 cases, we've looked at the data. It seems to us like those children would have had a chance to spread infection in their school, but didn't spread infection in their school. The opportunity was there and transmission didn't occur. And so that's good news because it suggests that the measures that were put in place, the universal masking, half day schooling, those kind of measures were effective in at least reducing the risk. I don't think you could ever say completely eliminating the risk. And um, it looks to us like schools were safe to stay open. And again, in the past uh, two months in our fourth wave, there have been cases reported in children and in adults actually in schools, but we've never heard of any outbreaks in schools. And I'll contrast that with the outbreaks we've seen in construction sites, in elderly homes, in all these other facilities where one case leads to five and 10 and 20. And in schools, there's never been any outbreak like that. So I, I do think the schools are safe. And I'd also like to give a, a contrast with influenza. So for influenza in the past 10 or 20 years, we typically have a big winter flu season hospitals have a lot of patients admitted a lot of children get flu and occasionally children get hospitalized with flu uh, every winter it's, it's unfortunate it does happen and very very occasionally not every year a child may die of influenza it, it does happen and there's other infections which are also can be nasty in some children when we have a really big surge in flu and we had that in uh, 2008 in 2009 in the flu pandemic we had it again in 2018 a big surge in flu, the government decided to close schools for a short period of time to protect children and also to reduce transmission in the community. We would never have considered closing the schools for the entire winter, even if we'd said that, you know, if we close schools for the next six months, starting from September until March, we can prevent a child from dying from flu in Hong Kong. I mean, that, that would be true, but we haven't considered closing schools for the sake of stopping flu from spreading. For COVID, it's actually a milder infection than flu in children. It's a mild infection. There's really minimal symptomatic disease when children get infected. Uh, they don't seem to be very good at spreading it. So we don't have the same community argument as we do with flu. So with flu, if we close schools, it has an impact on the whole community. Children are less likely to get infected, to transmit to others, less likely to spread to their family members, their grandparents. It does good for the whole society if we close schools in a flu season, even though it's a very costly measure. But for COVID, it doesn't seem like we're having the same impact of that measure on the community 
because children weren't really spreading it anyway. And we're, we are protecting children from the risk of getting COVID. But at the same time, there's a detrimental effect on their learning, on their social life. And so I think it's really uh, a difficult decision for the government to make. And I would actually advocate for, for trying hard to keep schools open. Uh, maybe when the fourth wave is over, maybe when we look forward, if there was going to be a fifth wave, I, I would hope the schools might stay open. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And the, this is, again, a dilemma of the lives versus lives argument. Mm. If, if we take a, and I want to be absolutely clear here that I fully support the, the, the public health message. I'm not belittling the importance of, of, of COVID in the slightest. But at the end, we're going to end up with, it's going to look something like 1.7, 1.8 million deaths from COVID at, 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 at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. That's about the same number of people who die from gastroenteritis every year, most of whom are children. 5.6 million children under five die of diseases, half of which are preventable. So in the long term, we have to look at um, the, the, the impact on, on on many of these other children who are not going to school, who are going to suffer from other sort of things. And how, how do we how do we navigate the uh, the, the, the lives versus lives argument in terms of opening up from sure. I mean, a, I, a suppressed I, economy. I, I would add to what you said though, though or, you know, let's say it is 1.8 million deaths this year from COVID. That's in spite of all the efforts we've made to control things with all the social distancing. If we hadn't done anything, if we just said at the very beginning, you know, it's, it's too bad, these things happen and, you know, let's get on with our lives, there'd be a lot more than 1.8 million deaths right now. It, it could have been a much nastier pandemic. But you're right, there's been this enormous economic and social impact from all the social distancing measures, particularly in the, the you could say, the lower income segment of society where, where there are a lot of unemployment now um, and it's more difficult for some families to, to deal with school closures. They can't work at home and it's really an enormous impact. And I, 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 I hope that we'll be able to go back to normal soon because I... I, I dread to think if we have to face another year of all of these measures and, and all of the disruption to our lives. I 100% agree about that the, 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 it would have been a lot worse and, and absolutely and I think you know we have to look at the, the great job that's been that's been done here we're very lucky with the impact of the control and, 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 and suppression um, has been effective and, and probably it seems from my understanding of the literature that it's also been the most effective from a socioeconomic perspective in terms of returns, although it's it's a little early to say how it's going to happen when things burn through in the rest of the world. How, so how how do we get out of the situation we're in at the moment with the with a lost tribe with a non-immune population? And mm. um, fortunately, the vaccines are on the way, and, and and the early literature looks very very promising. I think it's fair to say. Um, but it is early, isn't it? Have you so, thoughts on that? If we could all get vaccinated, or at least all have the opportunity to get vaccinated, then I think we'd be very keen to do that. And then we could certainly go back to normal because at that point, there's not a lot more we could do anyway uh, for COVID. Uh, if we could get 15, 1, 5 million doses of vaccine next summer and administer to everybody, or at least give everybody in Hong Kong the, the choice to be vaccinated, then we could go back to normal in September. I'm a little bit concerned that we may not be able to get so many doses so soon. I'm wondering what happens if we can only get one million doses every month or two million doses every month 
and we'll start administering the vaccines to the elderly first and then healthcare workers and I'm talking about May, June, July, August, September and so on. It could be well into 2022 before everyone's had a chance to be vaccinated. But are we really going to wait that long? Or are the younger adults going to think, you know, I don't mind that I'm not vaccinated. I don't mind if I got COVID because it's so mild anyway. As long as the grandparents have been vaccinated, as long as the healthcare workers are safe, as long as we're not going to have an overwhelming surge of patients needing to go into hospital, get into intensive care, maybe it's time to just uh, accept COVID like we accept flu. We don't all have working at home and staying at home and banning visitors when there's a flu season. Uh, we just deal with getting flu and getting colds as a, as a fact of life. Every winter, we, we all get common colds. And I think maybe we'll, we'll start thinking of COVID the same way. But there's going to be a communication problem if we go in that direction. Because right now, we're so worried about COVID. The government really wants everybody to stay at home um, and, and really reduce transmission because we, we can't allow more and more infections to occur and then more and more people needing to go into hospital the hospitals are already fairly fairly uh squeezed for space and the intensive care units and that's with the current level of incidence but then in a year's time if we we then say okay well you know actually it's not so bad for young adults it's it's not much different to the flu not much different to to other colds actually there's that's a bit of a switch it is and managing the communication through that it's going to be it's going to be difficult isn't it because i mean if we if we look at it's an unusual disease isn't it i mean under the age of 40 this is really the flu or less severe and and as we get to 60 70 80 it kicks off to the cdc data is what about 10 percent over the mortality over the age of and so there's an argument for for, for saying that you, you vaccinate the vulnerable mm. and 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 open up the economy and get things moving so you can get all those extra benefits for the rest of the population both in terms of their, their general health but also in, in terms of health systems how many patients are not being provided for in terms of other diseases and illnesses these are dilemmas that have been yeah, well I think studied well actually i think that's one of the unrecognized impacts of covid is on the the people who have other conditions that need to go for screening, need to go for routine surgeries or, or whatever. And some of those have been delayed. Uh, I, I knew a professor in London who unfortunately passed away because her surgery for cancer was rescheduled. And by the time they got around to doing it, the disease had progressed and there was nothing they could do then. And if, if she'd had her surgery a few months earlier, maybe she, she would have uh, been, been doing better now. Uh, it's really really unfortunate. I think there's been a, a lot of that going on that we don't really know about. Yeah, I think the other side is the, is the, the mental health aspect, which if we, t if we take an extreme example, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to give some context around the numbers, but 112 uh, fatalities from, from, from COVID in Hong Kong, but on average, we get about 900 a year from suicide. And I know when I looked at this in 2003 after SARS, we, we got quite an uptick in, 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 in that year. And so if we, that's clearly an extreme measure of, 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 of mental health impact. And there's, there's much more below the surface. And um, I think when we look back on the data in the future, we're going to see that, that the, there will be many unexpected and unintended consequences from a health perspective of the of the measures and how do we you know, at some point we do have to normalize how do we normalize 
more quickly. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, I do still think if, if we're looking back at February and March and the decisions that were made uh, and then remembering what, what happened in Sweden where they say we're not going to try so hard to control it, I, I do think the decisions made in Hong Kong have been reasonable decisions that we, we do want to stop transmission because we, we don't want to have more and more and more infections. We know that right now when infection gets into elderly homes, it's really nasty. When infections get into some other closed settings, the disabled home as well, it's nasty. We don't want that to happen right now. But in um, in six months' time, once we start vaccinating those most vulnerable people and protecting them, maybe it's, it's there'll be a case for, for going back to normal more quickly, not necessarily waiting until everyone's had a chance to be vaccinated. And I think other parts of Asia, other parts of the world are going to probably be thinking in the same way that they, they can't wait until everyone's been vaccinated they want to open up as well and they certainly don't want to be left behind they uh, a lot of places in the world are going to want to be among the first to open back up again open to tourists open to travel uh going back to normal in terms of business and and the service sector the restaurants and and all of that because it's there's really been a, an enormous economic hit in the past year on, on a lot of sectors that uh can't be sustained in you know for, for too much longer i absolutely agree that the right decisions were made and i think to be honest ben we've discussed this before i i i didn't think closing the border was the right decision i wasn't convinced by by masks um and you know i'm happy to acknowledge that the areas where i was wrong because i mean that's the beauty of of, of making decisions on the basis of evidence not emotion which is effectively what science is meant to be about isn't it so mm. um I guess that's a good point to to conclude in thanking you and your team for all of the evidence that you've presented to uh, to counter some of the hypotheses which have been raised from those outside, including myself. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, we're, we're, we're glad to be here at, at this time. The, the research group here was set up in the wake of SARS to recognising that Hong Kong didn't have as much capacity as it could do. And so the government wisely invested in more capacity in the public health sector and in universities as well. And now... Uh, we're here working hard and hopefully making a difference. For those of you who would like to know more, Professor Ben Cowling's observational study on the impact assessment of interventions against coronavirus in Hong Kong, which was published in The Lancet in May 2020, can read the full paper via a link on our website. Now, just hours after that interview took place on Friday the 11th of December, the Hong Kong government announced supplies of three vaccines. The vaccines must first be licensed in Hong Kong and the order will be dependent on further evidence of safety and efficacy. As Professor Cowling says in his interview, the measures employed in Hong Kong, test, trace, isolate and the use of intermittent enhanced social distancing has shown to be highly effective in controlling the impact of COVID-19 on the Hong Kong health system. It has, however, resulted in a significant economic cost. Dr Owens and Professor Cowling discussed how the control of any infectious epidemic comes down to a balance of the lives lost due to the disease itself, and especially in COVID-19 due to the overwhelming of health systems, versus the harm done and the lives lost due to the economic impact of public health measures. In the interview... Professor Cowling says that immunisation offers the best chance to escape the current suppression. However, there is again a balance to be achieved in terms of speed and choice of new vaccines. The Hong Kong government has announced the procurement of three different vaccine candidates, which will be dependent upon peer-reviewed evidence from ongoing studies. This makes perfect sense. 
voluntary immunisation programmes rely upon trust in health institutions in addition to logistical factors including manufacture, procurement, delivery, cold storage and ultimately vaccination. Firstly, the Pfizer-Binotech vaccine. This is an mRNA vaccine. It represents a new technology in which a small segment of mRNA is injected into the body. This causes the body to produce a spike in protein that leads to the development of immunity. It has been given emergency licensing in a number of countries. This is a new technology and safety and efficacy data has predominantly been released via press reports rather than peer-reviewed medical journals. The vaccine must be stored at very low temperatures, so the maintenance of the cold chain will be a logistical challenge. Secondly, Sinovac. This is a more traditional, inactivated vaccine. Press reports suggest that the vaccine has been used extensively with good evidence of efficacy and the Phase 1 and 2 trials were reported in The Lancet with the Phase 3 trials due to report shortly. This vaccine will be able to be stored in a standard fridge, making widespread use easier than the mRNA vaccines. And lastly, the Oxford AstraZeneca. This is a viral vector vaccine using an energised adenovirus. The Phase 3 studies have been reported in The Lancet, showing efficacy between 62 and 90% depending upon the dose. The lower the initial dose produced the better response, and this counterintuitive finding may be explained by differences in the population, generally younger, or may represent a true finding. This will require further study. AstraZeneca vaccine can be stored in a standard fridge, and the company is running the project as a not-for-profit, which means this vaccine is likely to be widely used in developing nations. Now, it has to be said that the development of COVID-19 vaccine candidates has occurred at an unprecedented rate. There is still much that we do not know. Normally, vaccines develop through three phases of trials. These trials are designed to answer a number of questions. Firstly, is the vaccine safe? And secondly, is the vaccine effective in preventing disease and or reducing disease severity? The vaccine trials for COVID-19 have been powered to identify a reduction in disease. These studies are very expensive to undertake and typically recruit around 30,000 volunteers. They are designed to complete if they reduce around 150 cases. The cases are confirmed by PCR testing, but they are generally symptomatic, mostly mildly symptomatic, although there have been some more serious cases. Regardless, the studies show the vaccine candidates to be generally safe within the numbers involved and to show effectiveness in reducing cases of illness. There are other questions which the Phase 3 trials are not necessarily able to answer yet. The questions that require further ongoing research include 1. Is the vaccine effective in reducing or preventing transmission of the virus? 2. How long is the vaccine effective and will booster doses be required? And 3. How does the vaccine behave in different populations? Reducing the likelihood of an individual developing severe illness is obviously very important. Only with greater data will we understand whether the vaccines also reduce transmission and asymptomatic infections. This will be important in increasing the effectiveness of vaccination in controlling the epidemic. Much more data is necessary in order to identify rarer complications. We also need longer-term studies in order to fully understand the length of immunity and the need for boosters. Finally, we need to better understand the effectiveness of the vaccines in different populations, including differences of age and ethnicity. 
The development of vaccine candidates represents an incredible scientific achievement. The new mRNA vaccines in particular represent an enormous leap in vaccine development in terms of management of current and future infectious disease. If they can work as well as some of the early data suggests and challenges to distribution and storage can be overcome, then we may genuinely be seeing one of the great medical advances of our lifetime. However, we are still early in the process and more data is required both on safety and efficacy. There are many other vaccine candidates in development and as we accumulate more data, it may be that other vaccines may offer advantages in terms of safety, effectiveness or the ability to impact the spread of the disease in addition to reducing disease severity. Understanding the different factors will require continued research and surveillance. We will continue to update you as further evidence is published and you can find more information and links to all the information we have discussed on our website. Thank you. Thank you.